Good morning. Good morning. Oh, what a wonderful morning of worship, celebrating baptisms. Man, that's the church being the church. Gotta love that. Amen, that's right. And uh, so I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me back. Um, I'm excited for this church. I'm excited for what's next. I love to see everybody praying for a future pastor, praying for God's provision. Um, he has sustained y'all for 100 plus years as one of the descendants of the founders of the church. I said, well, exactly like when was the church established? He goes, I don't know, over 100 years ago. I lose track, you know, so, so long ago. And so uh, I know he's gonna keep providing and uh, do great things uh, in the future. Um, let me just say that uh, a couple months ago when I was asked to preach, I had this idea that I would preach a couple of parables and I thought, well, I'll preach the parable of the prodigal son. It's considered one of the greatest parables that Jesus preached. And then I had this idea that I'll just go from that to the very next one, or at the beginning of chapter 16. And I don't know about you, but sometimes if I commit to something, you know, it's like, we're gonna do it either way. And so then I started delving to that next parable in chapter 16. And, uh, and I thought, wow, okay, th this, this takes us in a whole different direction. Um, and, and maybe some of you are familiar with the parable of the dishonest manager. Um, it's considered one of the most obscure and maybe in some ways the most complicated. Um, but I want to tell you, because it's the Word of God, there's truth and richness and edification coming from this parable. But you're not going to see what you saw when you read the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, and the parable of the lost son. In those, we got to see all these different expressions of the character and nature of God played out in the characters of those stories. Just, just think about it for a minute. We see the great generosity, the radical generosity of the widow who brought her widow's mite, the long, small coin, and she gave all she had to the church that day, right? And those that had much more were giving so little. So we see the generosity of this widow. And then you go to the parable of the lost sheep and we see kind of this uh, just um, strident sort of um, adventurous shepherd who says, I'm gonna go out and get the one sheep. I'm gonna sacrifice it all. I'm gonna go the distance to save one. What a beautiful expression of our own sacrifice we give to others and certainly the sacrificial love of Christ. And then finally you see the lost son and the father waited and waited and, and he embraced him and he gave him this gracious love and just forgave him willingly for all that he had done. And so we obviously see an example of how to love other people and certainly an example of how Jesus loves us in his graciousness and his forgiveness of us. And so these are both wonderful expressions. And now we come to chapter 16. I just wanna give you a heads up. There is nothing about these two people, and there are only two characters in this parable. There's nothing about them you want to emulate, so don't even try to do that. Um, fortunately, though, we see Christ, and he tells us what to emulate and what to follow. So uh, let's look at this. Um, there's two characters, as I said, in this parable. Um, one uh, is a dishonest manager. That's a far cry from just being lost. A lost boy, a lost sheep, a lost coin. Um, People have described him in some versions and different commentaries as irresponsible, crooked, shrewd, wasteful, unfaithful, unreliable. Some even called him an embezzler of funds. The next character you have is the rich man. That's his boss. And, and you'll see this when I read it. He eagerly and without hesitation commended this dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Or some people might say for his cleverness. And maybe so far as to say his manipulation 
of handling other people's money. So this is not a parable where you're gonna be able to look at the virtuous character of somebody in there and then emulate them, right? It's not meant to do that, to reflect sort of the godly character inside one of these. What Jesus is doing in this parable, and as you read it, you'll see this open up. What he's doing, he's offering a story that kind of highlights worldly ambition, and he's juxtaposing that and saying, look, how much more ought we have a holy ambition of our lives? Does that make sense? So you're looking and you're saying, this is terrible, but look how hard this young man is striving to be shrewd and working at his job. How much more ought we to do with our holy ambition, with our, as we'll find out, our generosity to others? So if you have a copy of God's Word in front of you or on your phone, you can turn to Luke chapter 16. I'm just gonna read the first eight verses and we'll unpack the rest. This is the actual parable part, the story. So Jesus also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and he said to him, what is it that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you no longer can be my manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm, I'm too ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do. So the, you notice he says that really quick. I've come up with it. I've decided so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So he quickly came up with a, an idea here. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, 100 measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, 100 measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill, write out 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Let's just pause there and ask the Lord to give us some wisdom of what's going on in this passage. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. Thank you for the course of praise that went up to heaven. I thank you for the intercessory prayer that we received and, and prayed together. And Father, most of all, we thank you for our salvation in Jesus Christ. I thank you for the word of God that testifies to who you are. So Lord, we need you to testify to us today. Father, use the, the words uh, of a fallible human to speak truth that comes from your infallible word. We trust, Lord God, that we'll walk away from here with our hearts, affections raised to you and our minds edified and strengthened in your word. In your son's holy name, amen. Amen. Well, I just want you to reflect back on this. If you're looking at it, just a few quick things that you see here. Two behaviors of the manager, the dishonest manager, and then kind of a behavior of the boss. And then we'll go to Jesus' words as he unpacks what's behind all this. Um, we certainly see a dishonest manager who wasted his boss's possessions before and then right before he was terminated. You catch that? So he's already wasting possessions. And right before he was terminated, he, he, he got into this desperate state. That's the second behavior, a, a desperate state. And so he quickly went to customers. He's not fired yet, all right? Let's say he got fired on Monday. He's gonna work till Friday. So he had Monday to Friday to hatch this plan, a plan totally motivated by his own need, which was what? To have a place to live, and food to eat, and maybe even another job. 
So he was not doing this for the good of his boss. He was not good, really doing it for the good of the people, although it might have benefited them, obviously. And so we see first his dishonesty and now his desperateness. And notice there's, there's a place in here where he says to them, uh, how much do you have? And he said a number. And he told them, he goes, sit down, sit down and write out your bill. Do it now. I don't have time to wait. I don't have time for negotiations. The days are passing. They don't tell them. He won't tell them he's losing his job. But he says, do this now. Take care of it. And of course they did. I mean, who wouldn't do that? I owed 100, now I'm gonna only pay 80. I mean, who wouldn't go ahead and agree to that? And so he takes the money. Now, we don't know what's behind all this. We don't know if he was cutting his commission out, whatever, but we do know he brought it to his boss. Now, here's the interesting thing about this. I would think a lot of bosses would be very frustrated, even more frustrated than the wastefulness he's already seen. But now the boss has a chance to view what he's done this last few days, right before his last day at work. And what he's done, he's gone to the boss's customers and cut him a deal. Boss can't go back now. He can't retrieve any more of that money. But most bosses would really be upset, probably cut him off right then. You know, do, do, do something else beyond that, but not him. The boss basically pats him on the back and commends him for being shrewd with his last days at work. He commends him for cutting the deals with his customers. Now, we can speculate about all these type of thoughts about, well, the customers, maybe they needed it, well, this or that. But what you need to understand is you have two people here. One is wasteful, one is cunning and clever and shrewd, and the other one commends him for being that way. And so as we look at this, we we're kind of, kind of have to unpack what does that have to do with us today? In the verse eight, which I didn't read the rest of this, it says these words. The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So what he's saying is the sons of this world, those are unbelievers, those who are apart from Christ. And obviously the sons of light are those who are in Christ, followers, believers of Jesus Christ. And he's reminding the disciples then that when you look at the sons of the world, they are more shrewd and not only more shrewd in handling maybe money, they actually are happy when people are shrewd or cunning or clever with the way they handle the money. They get, they get patted on the back for it. People applaud them for it. It's a strange dynamic because we're taught so much about stewardship and generosity and prudence as we deal with our money. So he wants to really go this, show this two sides here for us to see that clearly. Let me put it this way. A person not united to Christ and his word can be shrewder with their money because they aren't compelled by biblical sacrificial generosity. You understand that? If, if you don't have the word of God as what is driving your life, if you set this aside, then there are no entanglements. There, there's nothing to, to compel you to do anything other than exactly what you want to do with your wealth and money and your possessions, which normally is keep it. The flesh doesn't normally tell us to give away anything. I have a friend that's considering a uh, need of a transplant. So two or three people have come to them and said, I feel like I want to give you, you know, this, this body organ that you need. And someone asked their pastor, they said, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? And he said, you know, he said, the flesh doesn't want to give away anything. Not money, not time, and certainly not an organ from your body. <laughs> that comes from the spirit. 
It's the Spirit of God that compels us to give. But if we're detached from the Spirit of God, then all we're left is just shrewdness with our money to do whatever we want. And we know we're compelled by this. Matthew 6, verse 19 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That verse is known by many of you here. You've heard this maybe since you were a child. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we have to think a little bit today about this idea of treasure and wealth and money and where is it in our life? Because where it is will reveal where our true heart is. I think it's ironic. This was not planned, by the way. But, but this is the day to start taking the Christmas child boxes. So I'm, I'm really helping you here. All right? This, is, this, is, this, this sermon should really compel people to take boxes today. Um, but, but that's just one small example of how the Word of God compels us to generosity. And so... We're gonna look at just three sections here. We're gonna divide the last, last part of this up, verse nine, verse 10 through 12, and then end with verse 13. So I'm gonna put on the screen, verse nine. It says this, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. So when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. This is the point that most people, when they read this, they go, oh no, what exactly does that mean? Well, let me just ask a few quick questions to just to dispel some of the maybe confusion that most of us have when we read this. It, it begs some questions. And the first question is, what is unrighteous wealth? We should be asking ourselves, what, what is worldly, some say, or unrighteous wealth? Let me say what it's not. It's, it's not wealth gained unrighteously, at least not in this parable. There, there is wealth that you can gain in unrighteous ways. I'm not even gonna start a list of those ways, but you should think about that. Make sure none of us are doing things that are unrighteous in pursuit of our wealth, our money, our salaries, our commissions. But that's not what he's talking about here. We believe what he's talking about here is it's just possessions. It's, it's money, it's commissions, salaries, bonuses, inheritance, your property, your house. It's everything. It's, it's, it's in contrast to eternal treasures that aren't tangible, that don't have material value that we can put on a spreadsheet, right? So, so a difference of unrighteous wealth is eternal wealth or the treasures that he spoke about in Matthew 6. So it's also, it's, this unrighteous wealth is not good or bad. It's not moral or immoral. It's, it's, we're talking about amoral money. It, it, it doesn't, the, the Bible does say the love of it can be sinful, Right? The love of money. But money itself is just a tool. It's just a tool that we use to, to do all sorts of things in our world. So, so I don't want us to, to pick on that word too much. The next question is, how do we make friends with this unrighteous wealth? How do we make friends? Because it tells us, make friends, that's his command to the disciples, to us, make friends with the use of your money. And I don't know any other way to answer that than simply to say, Bless those in need by being generous to all that God has given you. If there's a simple little teach point just right here, just, if you don't remember anything else, just bless those in need 
by being generous with everything God has given you. And what he's given you is everything you have. From the shirt on our bags, to the money in our bank accounts, to the stock market funds we have, whatever it is, the house, the cars, it all is from God. He owns a cattle, the Bible says, on a thousand hills. It's a way to express that everything is his. Everything is his. And so we're trying to be generous with that. Our tithes and offerings, opening up our home, our cash, whatever it is. Over the last number of years, I've worked with a ministry in Uganda, Africa. They want to put up on a screen a picture of two children. They live in a place called Karamajong. Karamajong is in the northern, northeastern part of Uganda, Ironically, for the for three years that I was involved there, I never went to Karamajan. Our ministry didn't specifically work with them until recently. And maybe it's because we begin to find out in this area of the country what many people in the world were finding out that didn't already know. But they have been experiencing unheard of levels of acute malnutrition. Let me tell you this about it. This area is already classified as one of the world's poorest regions. 61% of the population lives in abject poverty, and their children, get this, are 11 times more likely to die from malnutrition than the majority of the world's children who are well-nourished. And our children in America are, are more than well-nourished, and, and so it's far more than 11 times than the children that we're raising here. They're considered an underage people group. I'm glad to say that in the last period of time, maybe a few years, that has actually shifted. We're seeing people bring the gospel to them, but they haven't all heard the gospel. But what caught the attention of the world and world agencies was that in a short period of time, a few three to six months, a thousand of the people died from starvation and malnutrition. Now, COVID had a lot to do with that. The government shut down for two years in Uganda, and those were places the government wasn't getting rice and beans to, or, or certain nonprofits weren't able to get all the way out to Karamajan. But now they can. There are places you can go to Children's Hunger Fund, to Austin Ridge Bible Church in Austin, to Africa Renewal Ministries in San Antonio. And you can give generously, even sacrificially, to feed people in Karamajan. That's just one of a thousand examples of where we can quickly apply this concept of, of giving generously of everything God has given us. If you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Timothy 6. This is a place that you ought to flag in your Bible. Many of you have heard it. It'll be on the screen, but I want to read it out loud. In 1 Timothy, that's in the back of the New Testament, chapter six, there's only six chapters in that book. It says this, starting in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Yeah, that which is truly life is friends here on earth, friends welcoming, receiving us into heaven, a chorus of praise from people that we know that, that, that we love them and they love us. There's a richness in that. And, and one of the ways you build friendships, honestly, is by being generous with what you have, opening your home, giving away generously. What a beautiful picture we have there. The opposite of haughty, the opposite of pride, the opposite of looking at the certainty of riches, 
but recognize they all come from God. And so this leads us, obviously, to the third question. How do those friends receive or welcome us into heaven? Because that's what the Bible says, which seems a little odd to us. It's like, Jay, that sounds manipulative already. Are you saying that we are to give so that people will welcome us into heaven? So let me just dispel this little part of the passage, kind of clear it up. The word welcome or receive is not linked to the friends. This is really important. Just grammatically, they're not linked together. They weren't intended to go together. It's a general statement to say that there are people who will receive us into heaven. Amen? There are. We have people that will receive us there. I have one friend, his wife died, and he said, I'll see you at the Eastern Gate. It's like, that's really specific. I don't know if it's gonna be the Eastern Gate, but, but for him, he knows his wife will receive him there, and he's loved and cared for his wife. And so we need to be mindful of the fact that there is this eternal home that we are going to. And maybe it's people we know, maybe it's don't know, maybe it's angels in heaven. But it's important that we get this right because if for a moment we think that if I give to this person, they will somehow practice some sort of spiritual reciprocity and they're gonna be compelled to have to welcome me into heaven because of what I did for them. You can understand how this takes us down a road of works righteousness pretty fast, Right? We can start gaming this thing, going, oh, okay, well, now, all right, I got a plan. I'll give this much away to this people, and the camera John people will welcome me into heaven when I get there. Clearly, that is not the intent of this passage. There's just no way that it is. There's too much about the scriptures and what we know about the word of God and what we know about Christianity to dispel that. Namely, what every denomination since the Protestant Reformation has held to. They may not hold to it today, but this has been basic tenets of leaving a works righteousness of Catholicism for the first 1,500 or so years. It, it, it moved and it got away from grace. And there was a resurgence in the 1500s to take us back to the roots of the gospel. And it says this, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed by scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. We need to understand that. So our salvation is all through faith in Christ alone, all through grace, all through the word of God, to God's glory, not to our benefit when we get to heaven, not to some reciprocal relationship with the poor. But here's the deal. James then steps in the book of James and he gives us this big however statement, all right? So we have to think about this. What James tells us, that there's this strong warning, this, this warning that takes on the other extreme, that if I'm saved by grace and not by works, why would I need to be generous? Well, that's not true as well. People say, well, okay, grace, faith, I love it, it's grace. Why do I need to be generous? And James helps us understand ultimately why we need to be generous. You can see it on the screen. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? A brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily bread, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Friends, we have to examine our lives. Yes, embrace your, your salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, but if it is, if it is, then you will, no doubt, take on the characteristics, not of the dishonest manager or the boss, but of Christ. 
who lived a sacrificial, generous, forgiving life, a giving life. It'll mark who you are. You look at the world we live in and not just Town Spring or not just Waco or Texas or America, and you'll recognize, just to remind you, that 85% of the world lives on less than $30 a day. Two-thirds of our world lives on less than $10 a day. And about 700 million people live on less than $1.90 a day. Not to mention that in our city alone, we've been known until the recent grocery store that's around 25th and Herring, um, and a couple others, we've been known as a city that had food deserts. We have a lot of people with food insecurity right here in Waco. We have a disproportionate people living in poverty than should be in a town our size, particularly with some of the recent growth and wealth that we've had in our city. So we can look across the world, in Northeast Uganda or in Waco, and we can find places where our faith can be lived out, not only in what we believe and our morality and our, and our teachings, but also in our generosity. About a year ago, a man by the name of Jones Chan um, who is friends with, but not related to Francis Chan, uh, who was the Crazy Love Ministry. He and Francis teamed up, and Jones is a food scientist. I don't know how many food scientists you know. Probably not too many. He's about the only one I know. Uh, and uh, he's retired from doing it, kind of in corporate world and stuff. And he set out to design bars that were high in nutrition, high in vitamins, that were designed specifically for those who are malnutritioned, both here or overseas. And they can adjust it based on certain, certain concerns and needs. He's, he and Francis Chan call it uh, the Thess Bar, using Thessalonians. It's a nourishing meal with 20 vitamins and minerals, renewing body, mind, and spirit. They wanna support healthy immunity, energy, and clarity. And there's a little QR code there that people can scan, and you might want to know 80 to 90% of people who are even homeless or in need of food actually have some sort of smartphone. Our government gave away millions of smartphones. So they have them to help them find resources, and they can find this resource. And when they get this, they get Francis Chan here in the gospel and a dozen other people talking on all sorts of needs they may have. Now, I, I tell you this because sometimes we get overwhelmed by giving, People are looking for ways to give. So if you want to find ways to give, uh, find ways to step out of your car and walk up to somebody who clearly needs help, clearly is hungry, wherever that may be, and offer them this test bar. Let them know. They can find hope, ideas, pray with them. These are sustainable in your car for probably one to two years. I have a box of them in the back of my car. So uh, you can check that out, the test bar, just search it. Online, It's just a simple, practical way to demonstrate our love for others. Here's what I would suggest to you. If we fail to be faithful stewards of what God has given us, of all our earthly wealth, we cannot assume that we'll receive the heavenly riches of eternal life. That's a strong statement, but it, it, it stirs me as well. It provokes me to go, if I am not a good steward, a generous steward of what God has given me, I, I shouldn't assume that all those riches in heaven that I read about are going to be mine. It's hard to hoard on this side of heaven and then sit at the banquet feast on that side of heaven. You understand? We have to deal with this in our own lives and how we do with our money. John Wesley, I think, put it best. I'm gonna 
former Methodist, grew up Methodist church. John Wesley founded the Methodist church. He says, do all the good you can in all the ways you can to all the souls you can in every place you can at all the times you can with all the zeal you can as long as you ever can. Yeah, I don't know if you put up quotes on a refrigerator or anything, but that, that's one worth uh, having. And, and you can even search that quote online. So first night is a little, little wonky, a little difficult to understand. I think we've unpacked that. Let's get to this first of two kind of final principles that he really talks about. In verse 10 through 12, uh, Jesus is gonna say some things and he's following, this was new to me. I, I, I can tell you it was new to me. He's following a, a rabbinic principle or pattern that the rabbis would use when they taught. Um, it, it, earlier I used the phrase, how much more? It's, it's kind of a how much more principle or a lesser to greater principle. Let, let, me, let, me, let me unpack it like this. Um, think about this. If a wicked, evil man is shrewd in the use of his money, as we saw in this parable, what will we do as Christians with our money? How much more ought we do in being shrewd with our generosity if he can display this shrewdness in his sinful ways. Does that make sense? So if you look at someone's life and you say, if, if these people can give away 2.5% of their income, which is a basic giving of Americans, 2.5%, Christian or non-Christian, how much more ought we as Christians give away of our wealth? It's a great question. How much more ought we to give? You know, he says in Matthew 12, 9 through 12, he says this, he went on from there, he entered the synagogue. This is Jesus. A man was there with a withered hand. So you have a, a man, he's got a, a probably diseased hand, leprous hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They wanted to try to trick him so they could accuse him. And he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man's hand than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. I, I love, Jesus is masterful, isn't he? He's basically looking, okay, hold on, Pharisees. Are, are you telling me that if your sheep falls in a pit on Sunday, Saturday, you won't pull that sheep out? Oh yeah, we'd pull the sheep out. It's like, well, you gotta be kidding. Well then, why wouldn't we heal a man? You're gonna heal the sheep and you don't want me to heal the man. Of course, he goes forth and he heals the man. In verse 10 and 12 of our passage. It says, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. Think about it this way. If you're honest and faithful with your $100, my guess is you're probably gonna be faithful if I give you $100,000. If you're not faithful with $100 or $1,000, you're probably not gonna be faithful with the $100,000. Does that make sense? It's just, just how principles work. Gary and I both know a guy named Robert who said years ago, he said, uh, he said, when it comes to money, he said, if a man is generous when he's poor, he'll be generous when he's rich. It just works that way. If you're faithful when you're poor, you'll be faithful when you're rich. In other words, money is not about the money. It's about the character, right? So money just reveals what's in our heart. It reveals who we are. It reveals, honestly, it starts revealing whether we're a Christian or not of how willing we are to give to the needs of others. He goes on in verse 11. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, 
Who will entrust you to true riches? And if you have not been faithful to that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? You know, when you think about this dishonest manager, you could say his life is reflective of his worldly character. I, I, I just, I hope that as Christians, that our life, our generosity, our giving will be reflective of godly character. That people won't need to say, I wonder if he's a Christian. I wonder if she's a Christian. They'll see it displayed in the humility and the generosity of our lives. And as he does, if we do that, it's much more likely that God's able to entrust us with more, not just material riches, but giftings and opportunities to serve others. He's looking for that stewardship of our life, the stewardship marked by faithfulness and generosity. Now, this parable culminates into this final verse that's of, of the entire parable. It, this is the one that people know. It's the one they remember. It seems the most plain and obvious. Verse 13 says, No servant can serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I have to think he kind of said it that way, and I'll tell you why. He got to the end of that sentence. You cannot serve God and money. And the reason I think he said that way, because he wasn't just talking to the disciples. If you look at verse 14, you know who else was listening? The Pharisees. You know who loves God? You know who loves money? Pharisees. At least that's what they say. They love both. They love both. Listen to what it says in verse 14, the very next verse. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Why? I'll tell you why. Because they were mastered by the desire for material gain while claiming to be all about the moral law and pointing people to God. But they were really about being mastered by their love for material gain. They were duplicitous in the way they lived their lives. So I think Jesus, while he's speaking to disciples, he's actually also speaking behind them to the Pharisees, letting them hear these words. So he gives them this strong, sort of unequivocal statement because the Pharisees were just mastered by this. They, they wanted to, and maybe some of the disciples and others listening, but they were mastered by the desire to love their money, to invest it, to keep it, to spend it, to hoard it, to do anything other than give it away. Years ago when I sat down with an attorney, I was starting this little um, nonprofit and I, we got some advice how to set up a nonprofit. And we were so excited about what we were doing. And the attorney who was a Christian, he looked at me, and I was young, I was 25. And uh, he said, I want you to put your hand out. So, okay. He said, um, right now, uh, your ideas about how you're gonna change the world is right there in the palm of your hand. The problem is, you're holding it like this. You're holding it too tightly. He goes, I gotta know if we're gonna work together that you can keep this open and allow God to do what he's gonna do, not what you think you're gonna do. And ever since then, that, that image has really just stirred me and, and, and reminded me often that as I hold out my hand and I look at my hand and all too often I clench all my possessions and my money and retirement and house or car and I hold it tightly because I want it just a certain way at just a certain time. I want to control it. I want to be in charge of it. 
And I believe God is saying to all of us, open up that hand. As I always say, not, not carelessly. You don't hold your money, your possessions carelessly. You hold them loosely and generously so that you're always ready to give. And sometimes it's with the poor and the starving in Karamajong, and sometimes it's your friend. And you just wanna display generosity to them, buying them lunch, giving something to them, because they like it. Years ago, my brother was playing golf, which is not a poor man's sport. You have to have clubs, you have a place, place to go. But he's out with a friend playing golf. And his friend got to hit with one of my brother's golf clubs. So after that, he said, I like that club. Man, that hits great. So they played the whole round. They got back to the car, and my brother took his clubs and the bag, everything in it, and he walked over, and he put it by my, the, the guy's car. And he goes, you can have them. He goes, what? He goes, what are you going to have them? He goes, well, I see that you like them. That's something you enjoy, and, and I just want to bless you in that. Just, just take them. And he looked at my brother. He says, well, what are you going to play golf with? He said, I imagine if God wants me to play golf, he'll get me some golf clubs. And I thought, what a beautiful picture. Now, this wasn't a picture of poverty and all that. I get that. But what a beautiful picture of, the, of holding hand, our hand out there. You go, if God wants me to have something, I bet he's gonna figure out how to put it in my hand. And if he doesn't, then I guess I won't play golf. Do you hear what he's saying there? My brother liked to play golf. But he had to train himself to say those words. To go, I don't care about golf. I care about my friend. I don't care about this. I care about those people. I care about that ministry. I care about the people down the street and around the world. And then God sometimes brings great blessing and prosperity into our lives. Because money is not evil. It's amoral. It's what we do with it that defines who we are. You know, when you think about this idea of serving God and money, I, I, I know this is gonna sound a little cheesy. I'm gonna out myself here when it comes to movies, but the storyline of the Lord of the Rings is, is an epic nine-hour movie, okay? If you read the books, it takes even longer. So uh, nine hours of an epic story of a struggle between a love of money and power while knowing that what's best is virtuous, good, and honest way of life. Everyone knows that. And, and what, what can be, if there's two... Well, he got caught up in it, Frodo did. But if you take Gollum over here and Frodo and Sam over here, they are a picture of ultimate obsession of being mastered by desire for what is precious to us, namely our possessions. In Gollum's case, a ring. But what you notice in this story, all the way up, this is really gonna make me sound like a geek, all the way up to the fires of Mordor where they're battling to get the ring to fall into the fire, you see all of a sudden Gollum's doing his thing, but then you see Sam and Frodo and then they start imaging what it looks like to be mastered by the desire because Frodo didn't wanna let it go. And then Sam, who stayed faithful and true knowing what was best. See, every movie you can come up with just about is this tug between what I love for power and money and possessions and reward or I love for what is good and right. And in this case, what good and right is devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, no one can serve two masters. He will hate the one or love the other. He'll be devoted to the one or he will despise the other. You can't, you can't serve God in money. You just... You just can't. I mean, I don't, I don't mean you're not 
capable in some ways. I'm saying you can't, so don't serve God and money. Like, don't serve purity and pornography. Don't serve righteousness and sin. Don't serve truth and lies. Don't serve forgiveness and bitterness. And don't serve both generosity and greed. Because if you try to balance them both, if you try to hold them both in this tension, I'm gonna tell you, someday in some form, you're gonna start despising one and loving and being devoted to the other. And far too many people have decided what they once were devoted to, they've let go by the wayside. And they even start despising it because they've fallen in love with and devoted themselves to sin. And the sin of greed or the sin of sexual lust or the sin of bitterness toward a family member or the sin of lies to their own spouse or children, their boss. Make a long list of them. But we have to choose. We have to surrender sinful desires toward money at the cross of Christ and devote our soul's affection to the throne of Christ. Once you get that picture in your head for a moment, you need to surrender whatever, whatever desires you have toward money at the cross of Christ and then devote yourself to affection and love at the throne of Christ. He solves both problems. He solves both problems for us. Well, Jesus was not just the storyteller, the parable teller here. I want you to know that Jesus is the one who lives out this parable. He, he is the character to look at. Maybe we looked at the prodigal father a little bit and his extravagance. Maybe we looked at the, if you go back and look at the, the story of the lost coin, you can look at the, the sweet widow who gave it. But here, it's just Jesus. He's our only hope. He's always our only hope. It's by devoting our soul's affection and obedience to him, we're gonna live out this generosity. I would just give you three statements that are gonna be on the screen, one after another. I'm not gonna dialogue much about it. I just wanna, wanna say this. That through his incarnation, he was the very embodiment of sacrificial giving to a sinful world. Listen to what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty might become rich. Rich in righteousness. We're rich in faith. We're rich in generosity. A second thing we learn about Jesus, through his sinless life and sacrificial death, he just demonstrated faithfulness to those in need of a Savior. Philippians 2.8 says, being found in human form, yet he was without sin, we know. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Finally, through his unconditional love, he displays gracious generosity to those undeserving of his love. It's you and me. Ephesians 2 says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You know, I, I started the sermon today with this statement. A person not united to Christ and his word can be shrewder with their money because they aren't compelled by biblical sacrificial generosity. That's true. Let me just rewrite it. A person united with Christ and his word will be compelled to give their wealth sacrificially, faithfully, 
and generously to the needs of others. I know what comes first. Surrender to Christ at the cross. Surrender to the throne of Christ. To open up your hands and say, look, God, everything is yours. Everything. That's, that's what we have to do. And then here's the deal. You don't need someone else to tell you specifically what you're to give or when to give. The Bible obviously gives us pointers to that, obviously. But, but here's the thing. I think the Holy Spirit always pushes us toward giving, not keeping. That's what the Spirit does. Whether it's a body organ, or whether it's our car, or whether it's a meal, or whether it's giving prayer, or whether it's giving a little bar, or whether it's walking out and picking up the boxes. Let's make sure all those boxes are gone today. <laughs> but that's what we're all about, right? As believers in Christ. I wanna encourage y'all. Y'all are embarking on a whole new kind of uh, era of this church. New pastor coming in soon, we hope. And you'll find somebody, you'll approve him. Uh, and, and what joy that'll bring you. And, and I'm praying that it'd be someone that speaks the same words, the generosity of Christ, I'm sure he will, uh, and compel y'all to do amazing things as the body of Christ here at Oak Grove, um, around the world and down the street. So let me pray for you.